Let's now turn our attention to the preaching of the word as we conclude our time in the book of Malachi. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to gather here this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, brought us together. You have given us your word Lord, we are reminded that there are many encouraging things, there are many things that are weighty, but we know that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable. And Father, we do pray that uh, as we spend this time now considering these truths, you would give us humble hearts, uh, ears to hear, and that your Spirit would move powerfully in and amongst us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. How was your week? Good week? Encouraging? Discouraging? What were some of the things that you thought about this week? What were some of the things that you considered? What to wear? What to eat? Who to meet up with? What movies or or, or series to watch? What about your spiritual life? What did the week look like with regards to that? Good week spiritually? How was your prayer time, your quiet time? How was your your quiet devotions? Did you fast? Did you fight sin well? What are personal questions? What kind of personal questions did you ask or think about this week? Should I buy the new iPhone? Do has a great deal at the moment. Should I change jobs? Should I stay up and watch the 11 p.m. football game even though I have to be up at 5 a.m.? (laughs) should I go to church should I go to community group should I pursue this person for a potential relationship am I happy am I doing what I love am I going to stay here in the UAE am I a Christian there are so many thoughts and questions and considerations that vie for our attention on a daily basis Research done at, I think, Cornell University to suggest that we make around 35,000 choices every single day. And just 227 of those are based on food. And that's not a lot, that's that's a lot of time to have our thoughts occupied. And let's be honest, most of the decisions that we're making don't really have much of a a, a bearing on our lives. Biryani or butter chicken? But what they do tend to do is crowd out or clutter our minds and we become occupied with these things rather than spending time on things that are of more weighty matters. That's why perhaps this week for me was more weightier than most. To be honest with you, this week I spent a lot of time asking that last question I mentioned, am I really a Christian? Now, this was caused primarily by two things. One, the study of this passage uh, that, as we see, carries with it some weight and and some weighty things for us to consider. But the other thing was also through uh, one of the GTS classes that I'm taking. The topic that we were looking at this week was the topic of sin. And in it, Dr. Smith 
mention names of men that had walked away from the faith, men who had been in seminary, men who had been pastors, missionaries, those who were leaders of ministries in various capacities. This was a really sobering thought. I was forced to to look at my life and ask some tough questions. Not only that, but as I prepared for the sermon, as I studied this passage, I began to realize how this, is something that is, how this is something that we are all going to have to consider. And that one day a distinction is going to be made between two groups. Those that are Christian, those are truly Christian, and those that aren't. This morning, as I mentioned, we come to the, the, the end of our four-part series in the book of Malachi. Remember, this was written to the people after they had come back from exile and they're in this uneventful, the, the, nothing seems to be going on, this, this quiet waiting period. The temple had been complete, completed nearly a hundred years before these events took place. And yet the promised presence of the Lord had not returned to the temple. And throughout this letter, we've seen this constant back and forth between God and his people. It's not against the Babylonians. It's not against the Philistines or any of the pagan nations around. These charges haven't been brought against atheists. These charges are brought against the very people of God. Initially, we saw charges against the priests as well as a rebuke for the way they had failed to lead the people, the way they had corrupted and defiled the name of the Lord through their offerings and sacrifices. We then saw the charge and warnings brought against the people of Judah for their wickedness and their unfaithfulness towards each other and towards strangers in the land, their disregard for their marriage vows and their worship of false gods. And yet despite this, we are reminded that God loves them, that he has always loved them and he continues to do so. We saw last week how God reminds them of his patience towards them. This patience that has been there over the years, not consuming the sons of Jacob, even after years and years of their constant turning from the statutes of the Lord. God told the people that he is going to send a messenger, one who will purify them. And last week we got this this glimmer of hope. We saw how God was calling his people to, to turn back to him to trust him, to put him to the test. He said if they would just give their tithes, they, oh God, they would be blessed. The nations around them would call them blessed. It seems that they were finally heading in the right direction. And then we got to chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. We're seemingly right back where we started. Questioning God, not turning from their sin. You can imagine that up to this point, the people of Judah must have been 
a little tired, a little annoyed at the, the constant message of Malachi, highlighting their sin, calling them out, perhaps even seeing Malachi as a, an annoying pest. You know, like that mosquito that buzzes around your head at night that suddenly disappears as soon as you turn the lights on and then just as you're drifting off, there it is again, buzzing around. And perhaps that's how you feel every week when we hold out the good news of the gospel to you. When we call people to repent. But by the time we get to our passage this morning, there seems to be something different. There seems to be something that that is shifting, perhaps in the right direction. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It seems that this message that Malachi has been holding out, calling the nation to repentance, it seems to have at least gotten through to to some of the people. Remember, this was the whole nation that was hearing these charges. It was everyone who had returned, everyone who was in uh, Judah. And it seems that some of them were convicted. And what do they do? They speak to one another. They heard what was being held out against them. They heard about these charges. They heard the warnings. They heard the rebuke. And they encouraged one another to repent, to turn to a renewed faith. There was none of this self-seeking that we have seen previously. They turned from their sins. They feared the Lord. Now that idea of fear is not to, to live in terror of God. No but rather to acknowledge, to to be in awe of, to revere, to be obedient to and honor Yahweh. And when we see the Lord's response, the Lord paid attention and heard them. He heard them. I wonder if you've ever just, have you ever considered that? That when we sin, when we are convicted and we turn to the Lord, He hears us. He pays attention. I mean, that should just bring us so much comfort. As you sit here this morning, remember that. It's another one of these glorious truths that we've seen through in this book. There have been so many of them. But we're reminded, even at the beginning, that God loves his people. And it wasn't just a, a once-off love or I loved you then and that's it. But it was a, a love that continues. I love you. I still do. And here we're being reminded that God loves his people. He hears his people. He hears them when they turn from their sins, when they turn from their sins and turn to the Lord. Friend, wherever you are right now, whatever sins you have committed this year, whatever sins you have committed this month, whatever sins you have committed this week, whatever sins you committed this morning, know that you can turn to the Lord and he will hear you. But not only does God hear his, hear his people, but we are told that a record is kept. Now, this is a, a figurative expression. God being all-knowing doesn't need to keep a, record, a written record, as it were. But the idea being stressed is that God will not forget his people. This idea of, of records being kept goes back as early as Exodus. But interestingly, it's only here that it's called a book of remembrance. Again, reiterating the idea that not even one of his people will be forgotten. 
another amazing reminder that this verse gives us. I don't know if you noticed that, but what was the basis of the people being added to this book? It wasn't because they, they started doing good things compared to everyone else. It wasn't because they now brought the right sacrifices. It wasn't based on any good that they had done. It was not good works. This book of remembrance didn't record righteous deeds, but it was those who feared the Lord, who thought on his name, who trusted him, who believed him. Just like we see with Abraham in Genesis, it was that belief that was the basis of them being counted as righteous. As you hear this, as this distinction being made between those that are part of God's community, those that are not, as you hear the basis of those that are, the basis of them being included, I urge you not to just skim over these facts. Don't just skim over it as this minor prophet somewhere in the middle of the Bible. But pause and ask yourself some questions. Two questions. This is what part of my week looked like. Two questions that we should be asking ourselves. Am I a part of God's community? In other words, am I a Christian? And two, what is the basis of being part of God's community? What is the basis? What are you, what are you trusting in or, or who are you trusting in in order to be a part of that community? You see, you can appear to be part of the community. You can be doing all the right things that might be expected of you. I mean, after all, that's what the people were being charged with. Those who were being charged with wickedness, they they looked like they were doing the right thing. I mean, you can look like everyone else in the church, and yet you do not fear the Lord. You don't honor. You don't revere Him. You haven't turned from your sins, but you're trusting in your own actions. Trusting what you're able to do. You look like the rest of the world every other day of the week. And when we get to verse 17, we see two promises that are being made for those that are his. And we've seen this, the, the, these distinctions that are being made, right? We've got those that are of the Lord and those that aren't. And we're seeing these promises that are going to be made to those that are of the Lord. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Well, this, the, the first promise is this, they shall be mine. And what a thought that we would be the Lord's. And this shows that there is a a special relationship to God for those that are a part of his spiritual family. Just as my children are are a part of my family, I have a special and unique relationship with them. They are precious to me. They are a treasure to me. This is not a relationship that they had to somehow earn. This isn't love that they had to somehow earn their way to. They should never feel unloved or insignificant. I wonder, does that describe your relationship with God? The second promise we see is this. God says, I will spare them. The same group, those that are a treasure to God, 
will be spared from a coming wrath. We'll see more about this in, in just a moment. But this should be another great encouragement to us. If you're trusting in the Lord, there is a coming judgment and God will show compassion. He will spare his people. He will spare those that are his. I mean, even the language of father and son emphasizes God's compassion for those that are less than worthy. You know, so often people try to paint this picture of the God of the Old Testament being this this grumpy, old, wrathful curmudgeon, you know, and then when you get to the New Testament, oh, then we see the God of love. But you see how Malachi has been showing us how wrong that is. You see how there isn't a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's one God, and He is gracious, He is loving, He is compassionate. I mean, just think of what we've looked at over these last few weeks, the sin that has been on display and the response that we are getting from the Lord, his, his patience, calling them to repent, calling them to turn, calling them to trust him, calling them to even test him. We have a loving father. The next verse goes on to highlight the distinction between God's people, that is, those who have turned to him and those that haven't. Verse 18 then once more you will see, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We see this, this parallel of the one who is righteous being the one who serves God and the one who is wicked being the one who doesn't serve him. In fact, this verse addresses one of the complaints that we saw uh, last week, the idea that the wicked are the ones that are actually blessed, that God somehow favors them and that it's pointless serving the Lord. But we're told right here that a distinction will be made. God will judge and th- uh, this distinction will be plain for everyone else to see. Those skeptics that claim God, that claim the injustices of God, will now be witnesses to his justice. And when this day comes, the opportunity for repentance that has been held out, the opportunity to turn from sin will be gone. And you will know who the righteous are and who the wicked are. God is going to separate the unjust from the just. It's a distinction that God has made throughout history. As we have seen God save We've seen God rescue, and as we have seen God spare his people. And as chapter 3 comes to an end, we're once again forced to to ask ourselves these tough questions. Will I be distinguished? Will I be separated from the wicked? Or will I be distinguished? Will I be separated from the righteous? We can think that because we're, we're sitting here today in this church service, because we read our Bibles, because we pray, pray, because we play our part of the Christian game, as it were, that we can somehow have assurance. But that's not the basis of our righteousness. Remember verse 16, those who feared the Lord, those who esteemed his name, Do your actions reflect this reverence of the Lord? Or do your actions come as an expectation of a simple payoff? 
that if you do this, well, then God will do this. One day, everyone will discern who is saved and who isn't. And everyone will fully realize the importance of trusting, fearing, honoring, and serving the Lord. We then move to to chapter 4, and verse 1 paints a, a more vivid picture of this coming day when we will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and, and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There is a coming day burning like an oven. I mean, earlier in, in chapter 3, we were given this imagery of a fire, where the fire, the, the trials that were going to come, were going to refine God's people to make them more holy, to, to sanctify them. However, the picture we get now is not of a fire that refines, but a destructive fire, a fire that consumes. It's going to destroy everything in its sight. I don't know if you've ever been up close and personal to the uh, aftermath of a forest fire. Uh, Nearly six years ago in the Western Cape province of South Africa, there were huge fires that swept throughout parts of the region. It had been very dry, Uh, lots of old trees, lots of bush, um, and it was just the perfect fuel for fire. And this coupled with high winds meant that a fire was sparked and raged ferociously and quickly. Sadly, people lost their lives. Approximately 16,000 hectares of land was destroyed, and somewhere between 700 and 1,000 homes were consumed. My in-law's house was nearly one of those homes. If it hadn't been for the firemen on the property who had been surrounded by the fire, hosing their house down and, and the plane water bombing it, their house would have been one of those numbers. I remember we went down a, a couple months later after uh, everything had kind of settled and the land was still in utter ruin. I remember the hour or so drive from the airport just seeing just kil- after kilometer after kilometer of just burnt ground, broken trees just looking like burnt-out matchsticks. When we got to their property, which before the fire had been surrounded by this beautiful bush, the land was now just empty and black. Ash and soot still covered the land. I remember seeing a video of just how quickly this fire spread and how quickly it just consumed everything. But to come and see the aftermath in person was far more chilling. And this is the kind of picture that Malachi is painting here. This this coming day of the Lord will be one of utter destruction. For who? All the arrogant, all the evildoers, the wicked that were mentioned in the previous chapter. Those that have complained against the Lord. Now, remember, this is not atheists. This is not Babylonians. This is God's people that he is speaking to. The ones who complained against the Lord, the ones who believed that their actions were sufficient. And let's just think back to the priest's offerings in chapter 1. 
This will be a universal fire of judgment on the wicked. This will not be a joyful day. There will not be an opportunity to repent on this day and turn from your sin. This is a very, very serious warning. If you're sitting here today and you have not turned to the Lord, if you're still relying on your own efforts, your own righteousness, let me urge you, friends, don't wait for, wait for this coming day of the Lord. A day that no one knows when it will come, but we know that it will. And when it comes, there will neither be root nor branch left. Friends, turn to the Lord. Turn from your sins. Trust Him. But while this coming day of the Lord brings with it terror and destruction for those that are wicked, for those that have rejected the Lord, who have relied on their own merit, this coming day of the Lord will be a glorious, glorious, joyful day for those the Lord calls righteous. Verses 2 and 3, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. For those who fear the Lord, who worship him with reverence and honor his name, friends, this will be an experience of unimaginable joy. As is so often the case with Old Testament prophecy, we get more imagery describing what this day will be like. The sun of righteousness shall rise. This is, this is an intentional play of words on words. It's meant to be a comparison to the coming Messiah. This coming Messiah, this son of righteousness who will come. I mean, just think of a sunrise, right? How as soon as the sun breaks, the light just affects everything. Things that were, were once dark are now brought to the life. It lights up the whole earth. This coming Messiah will bring his righteousness, shedding light on the wickedness. He will bring healing and deliverance for his people, for those who love righteousness, and it will have an impact on the whole earth. On this day, says Malachi, you shall go out like calves leaping from the stall. I don't know how many of you have been on a dairy or, or, or beef farm lately, but if you've never seen a, a baby calf running around, it, it's a joyful thing. It's a, that calf is happy. It's happy to be out running around jumping. It looks like one of the happiest living things around. This day that is coming is going to be a truly joyful, wonderful day for those that love the Lord. And even the question of justice continues to be answered. The righteous will tread down the wicked. There will be nothing more than dirt on the bottom of their feet. Now, the righteous will not literally destroy the wicked because the Lord will do that, but the verse does highlight that the wicked will be trampled. They will be under the feet of the righteous, perhaps sharing in the Lord's conquest. The righteous are going to triumph over the wicked because they are on the Lord's side. That seems amazing, right? Lord, let that day come. But it's not coming just yet. What happens in the meantime? What are the people supposed to do as they wait for the coming of the Lord? Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
The righteous need to prepare themselves. Prepare themselves spiritually by living out the word of God. How are they to do that? Through the law. This is what the priests and people were charged with failing to do back in chapters 1 and 2. This charge to remember the law is much more than just ponder on it or, or, or think about it sometimes when you have time. It means, what it means is saying you need to act upon it. It means to live out what it calls you to do. The people were to obey the law of Moses. It was the foundation for all scripture. They could not intentionally and willfully disobey the commands, laws, and then claim that they were righteous. Now, one day, as you, as you hear what, what Malachi is calling the people to, to, to think on the, Lord's, on the law of the Lord, does this describe your view of God's word? Do you ponder it occasionally when you find time in your busy schedule? Do you open your Bible more than just when you come to church or go to community group? And when you do read the Word of God, what do you do with it? Just become some head knowledge? Or are you living out what it calls you to do? Are you, you taking it? Are you meditating? Are you, you taking it and, and bearing it in your heart as a true treasure? If we believe passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, then surely how we live our lives should reflect that. But one thing I, I want to reiterate, one thing I want to remind us of is this. Yes, the people were called to live righteously, called to remember, called to, to live out the statutes and rules of Moses. But that wasn't the basis of their righteousness. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how perfectly they sought to obey this command, not only did they fail to do this, but as we said, this is not the basis of what caused them to be righteous. I know I've said it a few times now, but I think it is so important for us to remember today. Our basis of being righteous before the Lord is not determined by our actions in the sense of, well, if I just fake it, I can make it. Or, or if I try really hard, then God is going to accept me as I am. No, the people who had attempted that, they're called wicked. So where does our hope lie? It is in trusting the Lord. It is in the Son of God, the Son of righteousness that we need to look to. We need to look to Christ, the Son of God, who, who came to earth fully God, fully man, obeying God's law pro pro properly, honoring God perfectly, never sinning once, offering himself up as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, dying the death that we were to die, paying the penalty that we were to pay, rising on the third day, his death and resurrection making a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, trusting in him that, that we then are called righteous. Christ is the basis of our righteousness before the Lord. Having looked back 
to what was commanded, Malachi now looks forward. Once again, to a future day. Behold, he says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. We see this, this declaration, but before this day, God is going to prepare his people. He's going to send Elijah the prophet. Now, last week we saw a similar statement where we are told that God will, will send his messenger. Malachi doesn't specifically say that both of these are referring to the same uh, person. There, there does seem to be a level of ambiguity. But we saw last week that Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah who would, be, uh, who would come and prepare the way of the Lord's coming. But Jesus also made clear that there would be a future Elijah where John may have come in the spirit and the power of Elijah he was not Elijah. And he did not do what Malachi 4.6 says. This turning um, of the hearts of fathers to their children, the uh, hearts of children to their fathers. But this future Elijah would ultimately prepare the way for the Messiah's second coming. This last part of chapter 4 comes with a Another reminder of what this day will look like. He describes this turning of the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. This seems to be the result of repentance and faith. Reconciliation is a result of spiritual change. But while there will be this turning and this, this reconciliation, failing to repent would result in, the, in a, decree, a decree of utter destruction. And that's where the prophecy ends. As we look at these verses, one of the questions that comes to mind is whether Malachi is re referring to the first coming of Christ or, or to the second coming. It appears in, in this context that Malachi is ultimately referring to the second coming of the Messiah, the future day, a day of destruction. We know that that didn't happen when Christ first came. And he himself spoke of a future day when he would return. So how do, we, how do we make sense of all of this? What does that mean for us today? This book gives us a hope that while everything is not as it should be, one day it will be. We see that God is faithful, that he is a God of justice, that he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Another thing that we're reminded of, that God's timing is not our timing. These are the last words we have from God for 400 years. Day in, day out, people would have been reminded of this. Waiting, anticipating this coming Messiah. Messiah. People would have looked at this future hope and generations passed away before we got to the New Testament before we get to the one crying out in the wilderness, before we get to Christ calling people to repent and believe. But throughout those 400 years, God's silence did not mean his absence. 
and he was working all things out for the coming day of Christ. And the same rings true for us today. We may at times feel that God is absent, that he is silent, that things aren't going the way that we planned or, or the way that we expected, but God is at work. He's working in his people's lives as this coming day approaches, a day that will be joyous for some, destruction for others, a coming day when the Lord will return. I started the sermon with letting you know what I was wrestling with this past week, asking myself the question, am I really a Christian? By God's grace, I can say that I am. But as we are reminded of this coming day, I think this is something, again, that each and every one of us should be asking. We should be asking each other. We should be asking this regularly because there is a coming day, friends. As we are reminded in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're not a Christian... If you're not trusting in the Lord, that is what awaits. But it doesn't end there. We get some great news following just in the very next verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for the truths that you have revealed to us, truths written thousands of years ago, so applicable to us today here in Dubai in the year 2022. Oh, Father, I do pray that as we consider these truths, if we consider what we've looked at throughout the, this prophecy, this book of Malachi, Father, let us be those who seek to apply these truths to our lives, who not seek to, to presume your grace, who not seek to presume your, your mercy or think that we somehow earn it or, or somehow are deserving of it. But that, Lord, we would see ourselves in light of you, would see ourselves in the desperate need that we have to be reconciled to you and that we would turn and trust 
in the one who has made that reconciliation possible. And most importantly, Lord, we pray that you would do all these things for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.